Support for this episode of Script Apart comes from Arc Studio Pro. Arc Studio is the screenwriting software used to create incredible shows and movies, such as the acclaimed Netflix animation Arcane. It has a ton of features designed to unlock your creativity on the page, whether you're a seasoned industry professional or a first-time writer discovering your voice. Arc is all about minimum distraction and maximum ease of collaboration. There's an outlining whiteboard for mapping out your story, automatic draft management for keeping those scripts safe, and it also offers real-time collaboration similar to Google Docs, making it the easiest way to run a professional writer's room or just to write that great idea for a script that you have with a friend. Try it today. Head to arcstudiopro.com forward slash script apart, where you can get $30 off a pro account by using the code friends at checkout. Click the link in today's show notes to take your screenwriting to the next level. Support for this episode also comes from Screencraft. Breaking into Hollywood as an aspiring writer can be a confusing, convoluted thing. Fortunately, Screencraft is here to help writers with both the craft of writing and the business of Hollywood. Screencraft has everything for your writing journey, from video lectures starring your favorite writers to hands-on career coaching with their excellent writer development team. These guys offer the best screenwriting competitions designed to help your talent shine, featuring judges that really know their genre, from top literary reps to Oscar-winning screenwriters. Hundreds of past winners and finalists have started their careers with the direct support of Screencraft. Winners have been staffed on shows at Netflix, Amazon, Apple TV+, the list goes on. They've also sold scripts and been hired to write films for the likes of Universal, Lionsgate, Blumhouse and Hulu. So if you're an aspiring writer, what are you waiting for? Don't wait to check out Screencraft today. Visit screencraft.org or click the link in today's show notes. Hello, my name's Al Horner, and this is Script Apart, a podcast about the first draft secrets of great movies and TV shows. Each episode, a brilliant screenwriter revisits their first draft of what became a beloved movie or series. Our guest this week, well, you know, I'm not actually sure where to begin describing his lengthy list of accomplishments. Eric Roth is the Academy Award-winning writer responsible for films like Forrest Gump, The Insider, Munich, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, and 2018's A Star Is Born. At 77 years old, Eric is as potent a storytelling force as ever. Last year, he delivered a sci-fi epic so huge, you'd have to have had your head buried pretty deep in the sand of a distant planet named Arrakis to have missed it. Yes, I'm talking of course about Dune, co-written with director Denny Villeneuve and previous script apart guest John Spates. The film kind of achieved the impossible, It translated one of the densest, most complex, and widely beloved sci-fi novels of all time into a thrilling blockbuster spectacle that somehow remained true to its source material. The film followed a young prince named Paul as an intergalactic battle erupted over control of his deadly, inhospitable planet. Frank Herbert wrote the book as a warning about society's tendency to give over every decision-making capacity to a charismatic leader. Eric, John and Denis did a terrific job threading that insight into a chosen one story that challenges and interrogates that narrative template. In a captivating conversation, Eric told me all about the film's towering sense of scale and how that was achieved on the page. We talk about the opening that he originally envisioned for the movie that would have bankrupted the entire production had it gone ahead. And what keeps him hungry after all these years? Next on the docket for Eric is a collaboration with Martin Scorsese penning the upcoming Killers of the Flower Moon. So yeah, there's no slowing down for this veritable titan of the screenwriting universe. Getting to chat to Eric really was an experience to cherish. He is so full of screenwriting insight in this episode. So yeah, I hope you enjoy the conversation. A massive shout out before we dive in to our Patreon supporters. We could not make this show without you. If you like what we do and would like to help us continue to grow, you can become a part of that Patreon community by visiting patreon.com forward slash script apart, where you'll get ad-free episodes, early access to episodes, and all sorts of bonus content coming very soon. We really do appreciate your support. Okay, that's enough of me talking. Let's get into it. This is the amazing Eric Roth talking about the first draft secrets of June. Thanks as ever for tuning in. You're listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, Produced by Camille Demek. 
Hey, Eric, such a pleasure to have you with us. How are you doing today? I'm doing I'm really good. Actually, everything's good right today. Yeah. That's what I like to hear. Well, Eric, let's talk June. I absolutely adored this movie, a statement that's true of so many films that you've worked on across your 50 years in the business. I know that Denis had been dreaming of adapting June since he was about 14. But am I right in thinking your relationship with the novel was a little bit more complicated? Like you'd you'd grown up in that era, so you'd read Frank Herbert's novel, but you were never a fanboy from what I understand. And yeah, you had reservations about this being quite far removed from the more grounded types of stories that you typically tell. Well, let's put it this way. I mean, I think it, it was it was an important book, but it wasn't my end all be all as a 15 or 16 year old, as a, a lot of boys were. I mean, this book really defined a lot of young men, um, particularly men, I think. I don't know, uh, maybe some women, but young boys really uh, uh, fell into this. You know, it became their Bible of a certain kind. And it, it just wasn't mine that way. It doesn't mean that I didn't. Uh, I, I loved a lot of it. Some things I had a little less you know, interest in, but um, I, it was such a cultural phenomenon as part of my growing up that it was hard to ignore. And. I mean, I, my science fiction bent was a little more childhood Zen, which became 2001. Um, the foundation a little, which is a little more sort of organized uh, in a, a more sort of different way. And also Ray Bradbury and stuff. Uh, but, you know, Frank Herbert was a little more fantasy, you know, which uh, it just it wasn't that I was against it. It just it wasn't the stuff that I gravitated to in the same exact way. Um, so. But I, but I did always uh, feel this was a prodigious piece of work, you know, so that, and I mean, with the, with the, the glossary and the geography and, you know, and then the, of course the prescience of the environmental impact and, you know, and civilizations, you know, tribalism and, and all the things and that he, that he was uh, really, really sophisticated about. Um, and he wrote it in a way that people could relate to it, you know, so there was never any point that I didn't like the book. It just wasn't my, you know, wasn't something I wasn't uh, catching the right for me. Let's put it that way. So when Denis kind of put the idea to you of, of kind of collaborating on it, what was it that pulled you in given, as you say, like, you know, this wasn't the be all and end all. Like I, I read once that you're very laser focused when you write on theme, like unlike a lot of writers who kind of concentrate on telling the story and they just trust theme to kind of present itself in the work you kind of really think about what the story is about. Yeah, theme is theme is what I think, you know, it becomes a little a little ethereal in certain ways, but theme is what, you know, because sometimes it's a little harder to define, but it's I think it's the more sort of, let's put the, it's, uh, you know, God's hand in the thing, you know, in other words, what is that creative process and what what is it this eventually about is what is important to me, you know, so... For me, it was the, resp the responsibility of, um, you know, it, of being a prophet in a way. What does that mean? And I, I related it to, I've known a number of rock people, rock stars, and they have this terrible, uh, it's a burden of a kind, and they love it, you know, the charisma of it, the, um, the adulation, you know, singing in front of 300,000 people. But on the other hand, people expect them to impart something to them to help sort of give answers to life. And a, a lot of these guys don't want that responsibility. It's very hard to burden and it, and it becomes corrosive in a lot of ways to them. And, and I think it's actually one of the, re aside from, uh, you know, how drugs enter into things, you know, in other words, in, in rock star, rock people's lives and obviously other people's, but uh, this responsibility is very difficult. And so it, that was what, one of the things that I gravitated toward that uh, uh, Paul's character what does that mean where you now have this responsibility of uh, being somebody's idea of a savior in a kind of way, you know, certainly a prophet. Yeah. Um, and there's other, there's other themes in it, you know, which are the ecological nature, which we taught, you know, just mentioned. Uh, uh, and um, the, to answer your question, uh, I had done some rewriting on arrival. And so I had a relationship with Denis, even though it was, I had never met him. We had, um, we, uh, he was in Budapest shooting a uh, uh, Blade Runner 2049 when, when I when I did the work on Arrival. But we had a number of we didn't zoom then, you know. It was just all phone conversations, maybe a little FaceTime, and um, 
And then he asked me about doing this, which was, uh, you know, he liked my work, you know, for various reasons. Um, I was very aware of the David Lynch movie I'd seen. I'm a big cinephile, so I know a lot of movies. Um, and I, 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 it wasn't my favorite movie ever made. I thought it was just different, a different approach. It was a little um, pop art to me, you know, and um, and I was very aware of Jodorowsky's, um, you know, uh, I knew El Topo and I knew I know his work really well. And I thought it was always interesting that he felt this was a dream of a kind and Salvador Dali was going to be in it, you know, the existential quality of it. And so I said, how do I, you know, how do I approach this that it would interest this this kind of guy and also David Lynch? I mean, it's a very different artists. And uh, and uh, so Denis and I talked about it kind of at length about, you know, what were the things that were interesting to him? And I reread the book and. And I said, you know what? Uh, I, at first, I, I didn't really want to do it. I didn't think it was my metier, if you want to say it that way. Uh, it wasn't something I felt maybe I could really do that great a job in. But then I started thinking about it. And I, I like challenges. So it's kind of daunting of a sort. But I said, this would be kind of interesting. And uh, and I, I then, you know, I, I've told this before, but that when I uh, approach any adaptation, if there's source material like, the, you know, a book particularly, um, I'll underline everything I think is uh, cinematic or important dramatically. And, and I ended up uh, like underlining almost the whole friggin' book, you know, like uh, 700 pages of it, whatever it is. And so then I had to sort of, you know, let's grind down and see where we really are at. And, uh, and then we started meeting Denny and I, when I said yes, and they were kind enough to let me approach it. They, they needed out of me a few things they wanted the state wanted a treatment as to what the first movie was going to encompass. And, uh, and then the, what would the second movie encompass? Cause we knew, we knew right away, we were probably going to do two movies. What the, the interest, the interesting thing is they were debating about whether to shoot them at the same time, because you can save money that way. Um, and um, they probably, I, I think, and I don't know how they felt, how they would feel now, but it's such a risk that if you make the first one movie, two, you make two movies and one of them is no, it's no good. You know, you're in trouble. You're in big trouble. You now made two. Uh, so uh, I went to Denis and I said, yeah, okay, let's do this. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm in, you know, I'll, if you, you know, and he's, he's a wonderful visionary in his own way. He's, and he's a wonderful guy to work with. He, he lets you dream. Um, he, he respects your, uh, be imaginative as possible. He doesn't shoot down any really any ideas that way. And but he also was very specific about that. He wanted a feminine quality to the movie that the females were very important to him. And so I, I like that. I mean, I, it's not that I hadn't thought about it, but not with the emphasis that maybe he had. And then, you know, so with the Bene Gesserit and, uh, you know, the spiritual quality of the women in it and what their power and the power of the women and then the sort of the I don't know if this is really a fair description, but sort of feminine aspect of the planet with the sand dunes and you know i mean things that one could ascribe being feminine doesn't mean that women have to be that way but that there is a quality so we agreed on that so i said i will certainly make that the foremost and as, as much as we can and then he you know he let me go in right pretty much i mean i'm saying we spent a number of you know sessions together you know and having you know as people do creatively and and he went me. He let me go off, and I delivered to him. A, a, well, I'll go back. Uh, the the, uh, the state had approved the treatments, uh, at least the first treatment, and um, and they were quite happy because I it just reflected the book. Really, there wasn't anything I was going off reservation about, and um, so they they were very happy, and um, we proceeded. And uh, I wrote a very big fat. Um, probably overly long, but uh, very imaginative uh, uh, version. Uh, some, some emphasis to me because I had, um, how do I put this without being, anyway, I had, I know a lot about hallucinogenics or too much or something. And so <laughs> I knew what those, what that felt like. And I thought there was a quality to that, about that with certain spiciness and that. And um, also, um, he, he since he gave me permission to kind of dream i really did dream kind of not so far nothing far afield but uh, i mean i always tell this story and actually denis told the other day in an interview we we're doing that i wrote uh um the original the original opening of the movie was um uh, like genesis from the bible and god created and i was see the creation of a planet when we think it's earth 
and it's dune and with these oddball animals and how the water went away and how the sand dunes were formed and all that you know and it was it was pretty great i think and but denise said this is magnificent but we how do we can't afford the rest of the movie you know so that was that was it but uh i i think he probably was right it was pretty it was pretty ambitious um and i'm ambitious that way i don't mind you know, sort of bidding bold and going down, as they say in bridge, you know, I, I don't mind uh, trying things that might fail. You've told a story before about like a kind of a critic once putting the notion to you that, that your films are kind of fundamentally about loneliness. And, um, you know, it's it sounded like you, you agreed with that to an extent. And I, I'm, I'm curious whether you feel you were able to sprinkle some of that loneliness into June. I mean, th- I think I think I was with this with the boy, you know, I think I was. Yeah, I think that there is a. Um, even with, I think, and this is probably a little less obvious, but even with his father, um, you know, the Duke Leto character that Oscar Isaacs plays so well, um, that I think there is this sort of man against environment about this, that there is a loneliness to it. And this boy is searching for a companion of a kind. I mean, so he has his mother, who's a wonderful, you know, and, he, and he's also, don't forget, supposedly half, half Bene Gesserit, you know, he has this, uh, he's become this, uh, you know, he's been, he's the chosen one. So he has that, plus he's also human, right? So he has uh, two sort of factors going on, which I think, I think could be a lonely quality. I, um, I, I don't know. Some of the other movies are, are more, um, you know, this was more, I, I stayed not slavish, but I, I, I was always aware of the book. So I didn't want to, I didn't want to take big, you know, swings away from the book. Um, I think with the, I think probably in other movies the loneliness aspect of Forrest Gump or um, Benjamin Button. I mean, I can name other movies, even Munich. I mean, where <laughs> I think you get a sense of my human look at feeling. What does it feel like to be alone? And what is mortality? All those things that are issues for me. And my work's gotten even probably more toward that. I've gotten older. <laughs> um, Dune, I felt, I mean, this isn't a question you asked me, but I'll answer it. Um, Dune, um, Dune, I felt, had three obligations. One was, not in any order of importance, but A, was to the people who read the book and thought this was the, the next coming. You know, another that it meant that much to their lives. I didn't want to, in any way, take anything away from them and have them have hopefully a full meal out of that, you know, and that it represented how they envisioned it. Um, B would be the people who read the book and uh, didn't remember it quite as well. It wasn't as important to them. It just was part of their development. And C were a whole generation of people who doesn't know what the hell this even is, you know. I mean, it was, it was like, it's it's always comes to roost. The other night, I'm with my uh, granddaughter, who's 15, and Jordan by name. And uh, she said, Papa, I love that sweater you're wearing. I said, well, I'll just be honest with you, this sweater was given to me by Robert Redford when I was working with him. I was cold one day when we were working. He gave me the sweater. I said, keep it. And she said, who the hell is Robert Redford? And I said, all right, fair enough. Fair enough. You know, so, I mean, I think we're on the edge of people of this generation, not their fault. This is when they were born, uh, not knowing who the Beatles are, you know what I'm saying? So you have to be very careful about what your references are. It's okay. She uh, knows Zendaya, so, you know. So now, oh, 100% she was a dad. <laughs> she also was a funny thing. And this is, I don't know if I should tell, it's kind of a Hollywood kind of story. So I said to her, um, who do I, who do you know that I work with? She said, Leonardo, right? Literally two minutes later, Leonardo texted me about something we were involved <laughs> in. And I handed her the phone. <laughs> funny, huh? That's so, pretty awesome. It's true. I mean, but look, I'm an old man in that world, and I and I'm try I try to stay viable. I think it's one of the reasons I did Star Is Born to say I can still speak to this generation. You know, that storytelling is about whoever you are, you know, and whatever age you are. Absolutely. So you know, we talked about the sort of genesis opening that you obviously had to cut for budget reasons. Like as you kind of first wrote a 50-page treatment and then wrote a 60-page treatment to present to the estate. Were there other things in there that kind of like uh, were cut? Were there kind of other avenues you explored? No, it really, I think in the main, it followed the story. But we, I mean, I, I, I honestly don't, I mean, we, we had to make certain decisions on which, I mean, I think there were a couple characters we took out and I don't know, I don't know a chapter and verse anymore, you know, but um, 
Uh, but I think we 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 stuck close to the book. I mean, I'll give you the hit my history very quickly of this. So it, it was an inter- it's an interesting uh, thing because it's a dynamic I haven't really experienced quite before. Um, so I did my version, which was I says big fat, you know, um, wonder version, you know, maybe a little too much wonder. And then Denise and Denise and I agreed early on. So I didn't I didn't I don't mind if if somebody wants to put their hand in, in other words, he said, I'm going to maybe do some work on this after you. I said, God bless. I said, this is so huge. And I want you to be, you know, I always feel the director has to know the movie better than I do. I don't care if I wrote an original that at the end of the day, they may be their version of it and maybe not quite mine, but they have to know what movie they're going to sell. And so that, I mean, to tell, and so uh, the Denis, I felt this is fine. He can run it through his typewriter, you know. Um, sometimes I don't like that, but in this case, I had no problem. And he did a good job of making, you know, cutting, editing, doing the things that I think directors are supposed to do. Um, just to give you an example, um, and we use this in Mank uh, that I, uh, you know, for David Fincher, uh, the idea that screenwriters are uh, great craftsmen, can be great artists of a kind, and you know, you build a ship for people and you put your details in and everything else. And But the director's got to take it on its journey and he's got to make it get to where he wants it to go. And I always say it's kind of a silly comment, but that if it, if it barks like a dog, it's a director. It's going to sound like the director, you know, saying <laughs> look like the director and smell like the director. And it's going to be the directors. At the end of the day, it's the directors. It doesn't mean the words don't matter. It doesn't mean that you haven't made some giant sense of what this movie is. I think Denis would say that in a nice way that the, I brought a, a original soul to the piece, you know, that Frank Herbert had, I just had to bring it out. And then um, he did work on it. And then he that felt they, they still felt it needed some grounding. I was off to do work on Killers of the Flower Moon at that point. So they brought in a, a wonderful writer named John Spates, who came up with a great invention of switching the uh, gender of uh, the Dr. Kynes character. That's right. Very, yeah. Very smart, really smart. And so we then, they asked me back. I did some more work. Uh, he came back on John. We never sat in a room, the three of us together, by the way. Um, and I don't think I met John until after it, but it was an unusual experience for me because I've been rewritten and believe me, it hurts. And I've rewritten people and I'm sure it hurts whoever I've rewritten. But this was one of the most seamless uh, uh, um, uh, where you, it's really hard to tell who's who's, you know, um, where it all sort of messed without you know, we're all different personalities, different ideas of what was going to work. But I think Denis held it together like glue, you know. So it was a, it was a, I think the three, the three names on there are accurate. You know what I mean? That's who, that's who did this. Yeah. One thing that's really striking about this adaptation is the degree to which you just let people kind of luxuriate in the world of Dune. There's, there's no handholding or over-explaining. You kind of just unleash all these references to different tribes, places, people, religions, political factions throughout the first act, and you just trust the audience to pick it up from context and enjoy the ride. I, I would differ only slightly this way that I think we we went a step further with because we I remember having to write narration and also to use that film thing they did to show visually what you know what what we're what we're imagining what we're thinking you know what he's talking about Paul yeah you know, with planets and so yes I mean I think we had to do look the, one of the hardest part of writing as a screenwriter is exposition bad writers do good morning Mr. Water Commissioner right so you know it's <laughs> morning you know it's a water commissioner and somebody who's probably in a you know subservient role sometimes. <laughs> yeah but um you want to do that, but you have to give that information, but you want to do it in such a way that you're not, you know, sometimes you do it if you're a really good writer through metaphor or subtext, we call it, or you, but beginning writers tend to tell you what they know and we should know. And rather than doing it in any way that slides it in so you get it, you know, where you don't have to be just doing all storytelling. They do a lot of that sort of television will tell you all, all what you kind of see. Um, and but it was important, I think, to have some narration and then this, the visualization of that stuff so that those who don't know the book or those who forgot the book um, will know, you know, this is exactly what you're talking about. Who's who? You know, it's like a scorecard. Yeah. Yeah. Considering like I believe 
the Lynch version, you know, audiences were given glossaries as they entered screenings to kind of be able to track what was going on. And indeed, in, in the book, there's something called the Butlerian Jihad, I believe. Right, kind of, right, right. I know. I know. Yeah. There was obviously a decision made early on that it's going to bog down this already quite lengthy film, you know, sort of explaining all this stuff. It's and it'd probably be quite hard to do it in like an overly elegant way. So it, it seems like you and Denis kind of opted for a light touch and trusted audiences. I know we had to you know, ascribe certain things so you're not lost, you know, those who don't know the book, you know, backwards and forwards. And, uh, but also where you're right is that I find the film kind of mesmerizing. So you get, you kind of just, so that he, he was able to capture something that felt um, hypnotic in a way about the, the planet that you're just sort of imbued in this world that is going on around you in a way. And all of a sudden you seem, all of a sudden you're feeling part of it, you know? And I thought he did a, a wonderful job doing that. You know, it was really good. Yeah. Hey, this is Al. Just jumping in to tell you about two of our great sponsors this week. If you've written a script and are wondering what step to take next, well, you need to check out We Screenplay. We Screenplay not only offers amazing free resources for emerging writers, like virtual events where your questions are answered by leading Hollywood professionals, it's also the industry's number one script coverage service. With incredible 72-hour turnaround and format-specific feedback tailored to your specific goals, We Screenplay is used by thousands of writers in every phase of their career, from first-time writers to Oscar winners. So if your script is ready to go, check out one of We Screenplay's labs, where dozens of writers have been repped, optioned, and staffed as a direct result of their real-life industry meetings and hands-on workshops. Don't stay stuck. We Screenplay wants to help. Head to wescreenplay.com to find out more or click the link in today's show notes. Support for this episode also comes from Arc Studio Pro. Screenwriting to me is all about immersion. I want to stay immersed in that dreamy, fantasy-like state while I weave my story and craft my characters. I don't want to be distracted by anything, and I certainly don't want to be thinking about text formatting. Arc Studio Pro understands that. It's so intuitive, it has a minimal and, dare I say, beautiful interface that allows me to stay completely focused on the story I'm trying to tell. To take your screenwriting to the next level, visit arcstudiopro.com forward slash script apart, where you can either download a free version or get $30 off a pro account to unlock its full host of amazing features. Use the code FRIENDS at checkout to get that discount. That's arcstudiopro.com forward slash script apart. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. So to dive into the script a little bit, instead of the Genesis beginning, unfortunately, you know, we, we begin on the planet Arrakis as seen from space. We track across its endless windswept terrain and glide into a low-hanging dark cloud that's generated by a massive mining vehicle, a harvester. We push through the spice, these glowing flecks, kind of orange flakes. Um, and on the ground, uh, we have these soldiers flanking the harvester, leading the industrial nightmare through the darkness. And it's then that we're given a glimpse of a small band of blue-eyed Fremen fighters taking cover behind a sprawling black rock, kind of fighting back against these, these colonizers. Is it just me or was there a deliberate decision to kind of really foreground the Fremen and like the oppression they're facing and their courage in the face of this tyranny? Yes. I, yes. I mean, I think, I, honestly, I think that that you read, I think is probably a combination of all three of us, you know, maybe more John Spates, but they, I think they made a difference because I, uh, I even had a different scene then that opened it. Um, which is in the movie when the uh, Harkonnen um, uh, 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 have to um, uh, leave the planet. In other words, when they've been defeated. So that's, I think I had, I think my, the new opening, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe the opening, I, I'll have to, I have to think because it's been now a little while. And also, <laughs> yeah. I, I, uh, I, or it was maybe a dream that opened the thing with, uh, you know, him in bed, uh, 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 Timothy. Yeah. Um, but I, uh, I think that w however that came about, I mean, it was it was from another it was in another place, that exact scene of, you know, however it was described. And they just, you know, they, they made the decision to put it first or, or Denis did. He may have done that, you know, while they were filming the movie. I don't even know. Um, and it was a, it's a it's a good decision. I mean, I think it tells you what you need to know right away. And the Fremen, 
I mean, I love the Fremen because they're kind of like kind of a hippie culture in a way, you know, from yeah. a little bit from my era that way. And they're supposedly rebels, you know, and um, they they developed all these great things like the still, you know, the, the suits that they wear and everything to uh, be able to uh, fight this environment, which is pretty great, pretty great. So you always have them. And then the second movie is going to be uh, free for all with them. You know, it's going to be wonderful, really wonderful. Yeah, And from that dream sequence, we're introduced to Paul and there's this great interaction with his mother that achieves so much. Like in the space of two pages, we're introduced to the voice. Uh, we get kind of an insight into his relationship with his mother and to the, the weight on his shoulders. Like your father wants you in full dress, his mother informs him. And that kind of gives us a sense of the person he feels burdened with becoming. Yeah. Yeah. So who was Paul to you, Eric? And, and how did you find that character on the page? Well, I think that that, that scene is pretty much out of the book. I mean, that's pretty close to what the, we might, might have had a couple of lines to give you some, as I say, exposition about the father and all this, but um, those few scenes, um, but uh, more important is what your question is, is, as I say, this is, we, I wanted to, I wanted to begin with the burden on this kid, the moment he woke up, you know what I'm saying? And we know, you know, what his dreams were like of a kind. And I also, it was really important to me and I guess the book did it, but maybe I don't remember anymore about him being able to see the future. Um, I don't know if that's the book or me. I don't remember anymore. Probably the book. Probably the book. I mean, it's. I'm, I'm saying this because you get so involved in your work with the material. After a while, you don't know where you leave off and what, what you what you have coming into you from somebody else. You know. Um, and that's not a bad thing. It doesn't mean I'm taking credit for something I didn't envision, but I don't know anymore. You know, I'd have to go look. Well, one thing that's definitely uh, an invention of, of yours, or at least one of the three of you, there's this scene in which Paul and his father visit the grave of yeah. Lito's dad. Yeah. So, you know, uh, Lito listens to Paul's hesitancy about the leader he's supposed to become. That's right. He reveals, I told my father I didn't want this either. My father said a good man doesn't seek to lead. He's called to it and he answers, if you answer no, you'll still be the only thing I've ever needed you to be, my son. Yeah, that that was uh, that was an early on thing, the graveyard scene. And uh, I mean, I do like um, relationships between fathers and sons. And that was obviously very important in that, particularly because he's all man in quotes, uh, the father. Yeah, I mean, he yeah. has no, he has no, he's not, he doesn't have any other, uh, he's not Bene Gesser or anything. He has no genetic, uh, you know, except for half of his, part of his DNA in this kid, you know. But I think it's also, I think, you know, when you think about the tropes of, you know, Star Wars or, Lord of the Rings. I mean, everybody has some descendancy, you know what I'm saying? So you are burdened by it or it becomes something you have to either overcome or it becomes a triumph for you. So that that I knew, you know, going in was one of the things uh, that you do in, in Joseph Campbell's myths, you know what I'm saying? That you need to have a myth that you're, you're now going to debunk or uh, fight after, you know. So, but these things all in their own way, I would say, except for classical mythology, which is a whole other conversation, is they, they stem from Star Wars, you know, period. <laughs> you know, basically, that's, that's uh, you know, George was able to put that all into one uh, body of work, you know, amazing, amazing. While being inspired by Dune, so. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> but yeah, no, I know, but he was able to create his own universe, you know. Absolutely. And that's so yeah. hard. I mean, it's like really amazing. So I guess, Hats off to Frank Herbert, too, obviously, that he can create this amazing universe. And in terms of like Leto's fate in this film, I think that hits harder, his death later on in the movie, because of like the kindness that he showed his son here. Like that line, you'll still be the only thing I've ever needed you to be, my son. And one of the things that's interesting in the, in the book and the movie is that it, it slightly breaks drama laws because you assume the father's going to die way you know deep into the movie you know what i'm saying if, if you're aware of the father's going to die that you would use that as a giant dramatic jumping off point and and it is hugely dramatic and it's, it's obviously so important but that it happens a little previous prior to where you might you might think of this as a catharsis you know what i'm saying and so that it, it, it's really interesting because i think he imagined a continuation of these things you know that the kid is now Kids has to now, I mean, movie one to me is about him becoming a man, 
And movie two is about him becoming, if he can, a prophet. So that's what we'll see, you know. And 20 pages in, after teasing Paul's power and premonitions and after establishing, you know, the new planet that Leto has been instructed to take over, Arrakis, we're finally introduced to the Baron and uh, the script reads, his deep resonant voice emerges from the steam. He is mountainous, 600 pounds of soft naked flesh. In the, in the book, he's grotesque. Here he's grotesque, but there's, a, there's an even darker quality to him in the book. Like he lusts after a young nephew. That's right. Yeah. I mean, I think that was rough stuff. So was it just too rough? You made the decision? I, to I kind think of... that we, I mean, I don't remember in my version. I think, I think it was too rough for me too. I mean, in other words, I think, look, the villains in these pieces, you know, Darth Vader, you can name them all. Um, they help they make the they make the movie as much as anything else in other words you know the superman movies the batman movies uh you know the joker i mean you know whoever it is the the movie is is i think uh, the propulsion of the movie is because of them so that this was you know and and to make him uh, you know a pederast that way you know, um, I'm not so sure that would uh, you ever recover from that. So I get it in the book and I get that he's, at, you know, voracious for everything, you know, which is the whole idea of this giant, big, huge man you know, in this tub. And uh, and it reminded me a, a little bit of um, Apocalypse Now, you know, Marlon Brando. Uh, Marlon Brando had that kind of huge character. In a, in yeah, a, I was going to ask yeah. if that was an influence. In the bald head yeah, and all that stuff. So, um yeah, I think we we tempered some of that. Um, uh, I'm trying to think. There was nothing. I mean, I think he was he was a little hard to write because you don't want to make him a, uh, some oddball cliche, you know. In other words, but um, he was he. I think Skarsgård did a great job, and it was like such a it was it, it was a um, it was a hard character to write uh, as to you know because you, you don't want to make him just pure evil because he's I mean, that's that's fine, but it's not going to it's not very sophisticated, you know? So I think this kind of, uh, this, this representation of evil, of such, you know, things, something like that exists. I thought he did a wonderful job, uh, Denis. I thought he, he really uh, made it, it feel that way, yeah. And in terms of delivering on another thing that the novel was famous for, the sandworm scenes, they, they're so much fun to watch. Obviously, if you have any kind of uh, knowledge of the books, you're kind of aware they're coming. You're anticipating them, and it's it's so satisfying uh, the way they've been depicted on screen. It seems like they were really fun to write. Like the description in the shooting script is, um, you know, the worm erupts, swallowing the entire space crawler in a gulp. It's cavernous more rising out of the desert like a nightmare. <laughs> Did was the were these sequences as fun to write as they are to watch? Yeah, they were. They were. They weren't that difficult because. You know, you need to have the tension of when they're going to appear. How much do we see of them? You know, that was a, that's the trick that you don't want to see it all. And, you know, you, you want to sort of hold it for the last shot of the movie in a way, you know, you know, and that's what we you know, that's what we did. Um, uh, they were that was not as difficult to write. It was a little bit difficult, sort of the um, the schematics of what was going to happen, you know, and how what we see. And it was a little tricky to scene like. Um, when uh, you know they have to extract the people because the sandworms are coming, um, but that was more about choreography than anything else. I mean, so that you you know, so uh, but yeah, the sandworms—it's it, wonderful because they're 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 such a vital part of the thing, and it's like the great sort of um, the great beast. I mean, it's like you know, um, uh, you know, the great TV show, you know, with the dragon. Um, uh, you know, that that's always going to become a symbol and that, that sandworm was at, you know, completely. And th that is that obviously offers so much spectacle as does the kind of like nighttime raid. But then to kind of like end the film, the book has this really natural sort of like halfway point that if you're splitting this story in two, that's a good place to leave it. Were there kind of challenges in ending on this much more intimate fight sequence, the duel, uh, you know, and sort of finding a way to make it feel climactic, despite the fact we've just had these enormous scenes of bombast. Well, I got to, I, I mean, completely honest, I went further. Did you? Um, so, yeah, I did. I did. My instinct was a little different than Denise. 
I mean, I, I can't fault what he did because I think I like the fact the curtain just drops kind of, you know, and then you're ready. Well, when do I get my next movie? You know, which is not stupid, but um, I think he felt we, he, we had told the story about him becoming a man with that particular, that fight. Um, I had gone a little bit further where uh, we see some, I, I mean, I don't want to reveal what happens necessarily, but where we, we get a little bit more into the Fremen culture and, his his involvement with Chani, whatever her name is, Chani, Chani um, uh, uh, that, um, uh, but it wasn't much. I mean, it was maybe another five minutes, you know, at the most, another five pages or something. But uh, this is where he felt looking at the movie that he wanted to end things. And I think it works. You know, I, I felt, I felt great. I, I loved it when the movie was over that in that way, you know, I said, yeah, I'm ready for part two. And, you know, the, the, the adventure continue. You and me both. Um, but here's a question that maybe I wouldn't have thought to ask a few weeks, but unfortunately, depressingly, it is a relevant question to ask now. What do you think this story expresses about the nature of war, of empire, and of like military occupation that rings so true? Is there, are there kind of contemporary echoes that kind of feel resonant in the story of June? Yeah, I mean, I think, I, I mean, I think, there are certainly contemporary echoes, but there've been echoes, I think, throughout human history. I mean, you're fighting over dirt. You know what I'm saying? So if you want to get down to the basics, I'm not talking about now philosophically about democracy and all those things, of course, you should fight over. Um, and obviously, it's it's just tragic what's going on, uh, you know, echo again of World War II and everything for no, really, I, I don't understand it myself, and I'm not stupid. Um, but the inhumanity uh, and I think that's always been true. And, and why not in another um, in another world? You know, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you, I, I just used this the other day, but Francis Coppola and I were talking while well, I was working for him on something. And and he, we we're talking about him doing a science fiction thing and, you know, in other worlds. And he said, look, it's all about the story. He said, if you're going to if you're not going to have a good story, then people are going to be watching the chandelier. You know, he was using a metaphor, but that's true. Because in other words, if you're, if you're not engaged and it doesn't represent real life things that, uh, you know, that that you're ending up just watching, you know, the skies for a spacecraft or something, you know, and it's not enough. I mean, you, so no matter what story you're telling, you need to have the story has to, you know, be foremost and not for me theme on top of that. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's it was prescient of him with I think the tribal natures of things, the, um, you know, uh, that somehow man can't get away from um, uh, believing that might's gonna be right, that kind of stuff, you know? So uh, um, yeah, I mean, that that's evident in part of it, you know, and you can go to that or you could go to Bob Dylan singing Masters of War. I mean, in other words, same era, you know what I'm saying? And same, but I think that happens unfortunately over how many generations, you know, how many wars have there been? So, uh, and they're all, they're all about the same thing mostly, don't you think? They're, I mean, they're about religion or they're about power or they're about uh, philosophy, you know, or, you know, and most of them are about hatred, you know? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Well, one of our Patreon supporters, Chris Wade, had, had a great question. Um, he wondered, did you ever think June might work as a miniseries rather than a film? And well, as someone who kind of helped lead the, the current TV streaming prestige series boom with, with your work on House of Cards, Eric, I'm definitely curious to hear your perspective on this one. Um, I, I think they are, they either are planning or they, they don't have yet. I don't think you probably know better than I, I think they're going to have a dude team. That's yeah. I know John was working on it for a yeah, while. They, they know more about that than I, I don't know that much about it. Um, yeah, certainly anything in a way could be it, uh, but I I think there's a there's I mean it's a longer conversation. It's a great question, by the way. But um, I, I have mixed feelings about House of Cards. I th I love the show. I love doing it with David. I mean, we did you know we created this. Not obviously it was created by the wonderful writer, and I had actually known about it for a while that uh, Michael Mann and Al Pacino are I going to do we're going to do it as a movie. Because it's just Richard the Third, you know, in a, in a yeah. just um, anyhow, um, uh, you know, it's like a guy stands outside a room, a powerful guy, and he says, "Watch me go in this room and fuck these people," you know, and that's what it was. So uh, it when when it was purchased, I was I I was more in favor of actually selling it at that point, in point in time, and 
to HBO because I was interested in sort of water cooler conversation and just each week it would roll itself out. And David said, no, you're being short-sighted, you're being a Luddite and you're, you're, you're missing what is a bigger world here where there's, there's plenty of eyeballs to see this. And if they start eating it up, which they did with the um, binging, you're going to create a new universe. And, you know, I think that's, I think it's great. And look, I watch things on my phone like anybody else, but I, but I was born uh, watching movies on, you know, I went to the Brooklyn Paramount Theater and sat in the balcony as I was seven years old and watched War of the Worlds and this giant screen. And, you know, there was, star, there was uh, lights on the ceiling it was supposed to make you feel like you were in, at night and, the, and stars outside, you know, and uh, it was like, what an experience, you know. So I miss that, you know, and I'll miss it. But uh, um there are trade-offs, you know, so I think sometimes I, I, I'm so happy this was to, supposed to be a theatrical experience. And I would recommend anybody who still wants to see it to go see it in IMAX, you know, look, it was streamed then, you know, so you ended up sort of a hybrid of what this gentleman's asking. about. Still, despite it being day and day, did do really well at, at the box office. It also, as we mentioned at the top of the show, scored you another Oscar nomination, your sixth Best Adapted Screenplay nomination. Ivan Marco, another of our Patreon supporters, was wondering if you had any insights as to what it is that makes you so successful in this category. Like, There's evidently an art to adaptation. Is there a particular philosophy that guides you when it comes to translating novels to screen? Well, I, I mean, I get, I guess it's well, they're not all novels. I mean, well, uh, yeah, the Insider was from a, uh, a magazine article. Um, I mean, I could start name them, and in some cases, I won't name which ones. The books weren't very good, so sometimes bad books make good movies. <laughs> bad plays do too. But um, I don't ever look at it as adaptation in a way. I always look at it as original writing that I can. I mean, I'm blessed to have being given like Benjamin Button behind me in my room here. Yeah. Because uh, um, I just love that movie, even though I think there's things we could talk about. But um, uh, that was just a, a single idea. But I didn't have the idea. F. Scott Fitzgerald was a far better writer than I'll ever be. And but the, but the article, the, the, the short story he wrote isn't very good, to be honest with you. It's in Collier's. He did it for the money. He threw it off. So I had permission to then go invent, you know what I'm saying? From that point, but I, you have to invent a guy who's aging backwards and that was his his idea. But what now what story are you telling? You know, so that that's always the, the what I love, your challenge with what, what, and then you have to decide what you're gonna use from the material that's there. You know, you can't, um, to answer his question, you can't do, uh, uh, you can't do the whole book. You can't do a man's life, for instance, in, in a movie, it, it, you, you, you have to, as Fincher actually said, you have to only give the impression of a man's life. You know, Citizen Kane is two and a half hours, two hours, 20 minutes. That's all you're getting. You're not getting, you know, hours upon hours. Even if you have a big miniseries or, a, you know, or a long running show, you can't cover 30 years. You can cover it, but you won't live 30 years to see it. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so you you have to dramatize things. So that's that's my job. I'm a dramatist, you know, at that heart. And if I'm good, I think I'm good at humanizing things. I'm, I'm, I think I can uh, make people feel human and that you recognize them. You know? And we've been teasing it across uh, you know, the duration of this conversation, Eric. June part two has now, of course, been officially greenlit. Uh, so are you, are you getting the band back together with John and Denis for this sequel? I'm, 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 I, I'll, I'll be just dead frank honest. I'm 76 years old. I said to Denis and I said to the people who pay for these things, I have other worlds to conquer, and uh, and so I know I know Denise working on it, and I'm I, I I don't know if John is or not. He sh I hope he is because it's important to him, and he's a wonderful writer. Um, I'm sure they'll utilize him in whatever way they are, or um, and I I have a feeling somewhere along the road they'll probably call me and say, "Would you take a look at this? What do you think?" And uh, but I, I I'm do I did Killers of the Flower Moon that Marty Scorsese made with yeah. Leonardo DiCaprio. It's amazing movie uh, from the script and what Marty shot, and I think it'll be something really special. And I have another movie. It looks like it's going to get made, and another thing I just finished. So um, uh, I, I I mean I'm trying to without sounding bleak, but I'm trying to maximize my time on this planet to be able to do whatever work I can do and the best I can do. And it wasn't, I would have gone back to Dune, I guess, but I think I've been there, you know? So that doesn't mean they can't create wonderful new things and I'm sure they will, 
you know, so it's just, uh, they didn't need Eric Roth necessarily. <laughs> and in terms of those, uh, I love the phrase, uh, you know, there are worlds still left for you to conquer, you know, what are those worlds, Eric? I know you have lots of projects in in the, the offing at the minute, and some of them you'll be able to talk about. Some of you, some of them you won't. But in terms of like your your remaining white whales, the things you haven't done, the directors you haven't yet worked with, considering you've worked with everyone from Kurosawa to Spielberg and now Scorsese, you know, what are these worlds left to conquer after fifty years of doing what you do? Well, I think it's all about what the subject matter is. You know, I'm interested in a thing that Leonardo and I, a couple things we're talking about pretty seriously. Um, uh, one is, I'd say, about the environment in its own way, but there's a great story, I think, to it, which surprises you when it becomes about the environment. And then we, we have a, a look at some American culture we're very interested in. Um, I'm going to do, uh, I'm, or I'm doing, I'm just a little behind on Cher. I'm doing Cher's biography. Oh, wow, I didn't friends. know that. We're good friends, yeah. And um, that I have, I think, fun. a pretty. I think I have a really different way to do it. We'll see. I could strike <laughs> out big time. Um, I did a uh, a love story for Netflix. I literally turned in yesterday that I think is pretty spectacular. Um, very, very. Um, uh, I guess if you want to harken back to an older movie, the way we were in a way, it's a modern romance. So um, I can't talk much about it, but I've done a project with Bob Zemeckis and Tom Hanks um, that we uh, we finished. Uh, and I, I can't say much more about it, but it's pretty special. I knew uh, you, I thought you guys were doing a graphic novel or something. Is, it, is that the thing I'm well, thinking that's, that's right. That's exactly. It's done. Yeah, it's Excellent. Done. Yeah. Yes. Well, that's a lovely place to leave things, Eric. This has been so much fun. And... Anytime. I love talking about the, what I do. You know, it's like, how blessed am I? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, well, from what I hear, it's every morning up at eight on this old computer system that doesn't have email access or an internet connection. No email. You can't, you can't steal it. Maybe that's the tactic I need to take. And then I can be as prolific as you. No, it's uh, it's. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't recommend this to anybody. I'm just used to it, but it only... It only has 40 pages of memory and it, it, you have to end your 40 pages or it's going to disappear the whole damn thing. And I'm <laughs> petrified the thing's going to at some point just collapse, you know? So, but somehow it keeps working and ticking away. So we'll see. <laughs> Eric, this has been so great. Thank you so much for your time today. Hope to speak soon. It's great. Thank you. You've been listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, produced by Camille Demek. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time.